0: Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. This week, I have a great conversation with Anar Bolset. If you don't recall, Anar Bolset is my co-founder with Tiny Seed, and he's also the founding partner of Discretion Capital, which is an advisory firm that advises SaaS founders who are in, let's say, the $1 to $2 million and up ARR range when they decide that they want to sell. And you need people who know what they're talking about, and, and Anar is one of them. And the fun part about our conversation today is we we bat around... Funding for Bootstrappers. And really specifically, there's been a couple conversations I've had over the past couple of months that have gotten me thinking about talking about this on the show. Because obviously this funding has become much more viable for Bootstrappers. It's not just Bootstrap or venture path. There's this whole thing in the middle that we, we talk about. Tiny Seeds uh, is obviously part of that. And I think there's still confusion and misconceptions, and, and it's just amorphous and often hard to understand what's going on and, and kind of some of the realities of it. And so we spend this whole episode batting around hey, when should a bootstrapper think about raising funding? When should they not? When is it a good fit? And we talk a little bit about terms and you know how much founders should think about raising and just everything we're seeing. And the cool part is he and I have pretty different perspectives. I mean, I guess we share perspectives on a lot of things, being, you know, the co-founders of, of Tiny Seed, but I also have, you know, a lot of experience with other angel investments. That I made before Tiny Seed that are still uh, around, and I see different examples there. And he has experience with his discretion work and even the, the companies that he started before Tiny Seed. So my hope is that it is helpful in you know just providing a little more of a level set and and some more thoughts on this topic. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with Anar Volset. Anar, thanks for joining me once again on Startups for the Rest of Us. Good to be on again, Rob. Yeah. And we get to talk about funding and thinking through bootstrapping versus funding, or even these days, it's, it's not just two options, right? It's not just, should I self fund, Should I bootstrap? Should I raise venture? It's like, there's all these, these avenues you can go down, you know, whether it's a tiny seed like accelerator, raising a small angel round for a couple hundred grand. To me, my take is it's gotten more robust and and easier for founders who are in the microconf startups or the rest of us type community in that situation to raise money on terms that make sense to them. Because 10 years ago, I don't know of a single company in our space that could raise money not from essentially institutional folks who wanted them to become unicorns.
1: I mean, there's like, there's equity and there's different types of investments too now that that wasn't a thing like five years ago, like things like non-dilutive revenue-based financing, pipe, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, a lot of options. I know when I did, you know, my microconf talk in Vegas, it was US growth, maybe it was 2018, where... I said it might have been 19 I can't who can keep track with covid it's just everything before covid and everything after but I did a talk and I was kind of like talking about the state of bootstrapping and and how I saw more companies raising funding not to go venture track but to raise one round, you know, maybe two, and two hundred to five hundred grand. I pointed out customer.io. I'm an investor in Angel Investor in Turnbuster, Right Message, Cart Hook, Lead Fuse. All of these folks who were like, "Yeah, we're not, we're not looking at IPO. You know, we're not going the the full way." And as I saw that happening, obviously Tiny Seed came out of a need where it's like, "Well, I only had so much of my own money to be able to put that in." We did Tiny because there was a need on that side. It was pretty obvious to me that more kind of bootstrap-ish capital-efficient founders want to raise money these days
1: i think so i mean one of the missions like for me the reason why uh, you know i love doing tiny seed is because i think that kind of investment in that kind of founder really enables them to quit their day job and 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 really like there can be many more founders like that if you have the capital going to these kinds of places
0: Yeah. And I mean, I want to be clear, obviously startups, the rest of us, 500 and whatever, we're almost to 560 now. Like we've, we've talked a lot, a lot, a lot about bootstrapping and we, but we've also talked about funding, even going back to like 2013, 2014, I talked about fund strapping with Colin from customer.io, Mike Tabor, the co-host emeritus of startups, the rest of us and I had several episodes on when to think about taking angel investment on funding versus bootstrapping, 19 questions to ask. That was episode 411 back in 2018. So it's not right for everyone, you know? And I think that's one thing we want to talk through today is like, when does it make sense? We've seen founders, I'm going to be honest, I don't know that you and I've ever talked about this, but like, I've seen founders who I just, I thought would just be bootstrappers forever and never raise rounds, take funding. And they have very good reasons for it, and they don't regret it. And it's folks like like Craig Hewitt with Castos. He was in Tiny Seed Batch 1. I just thought he was going to bootstrap everything. Ruben Gomez with BidSketch and now DocSketch SignWell took money from us, you know? And, and he did it to move faster. He did it because it makes some things just a little easier, you know? And it, it hasn't changed his business other than having more resources to work with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned Colin, too. Like, he's doing... You know, he's doing incredibly well. now. I think he's doing, he's open about his numbers. I think he's doing 22 million ARR right now.
0: And when you talk to him, he's totally along that line too of like, hey, I'm not, I don't want to be a unicorn. I want to build a real business. 22 million ARR SaaS company in the email space. And now they're, I think they're doing a crowdfunding, or I know they're doing a crowdfunding thing right now to raise money. And I believe they've raised like two smaller rounds before that. I think the very first round was a couple hundred grand. And I don't know what the second round was, but I think it's probably all in Crunchbase. base. But you're right. It's founders like like that who see it. There's bootstrapping, there's VC, and then there's this whole thing in the middle now, and that's what we're trying to. It's still amorphous, I think. That's what we're leaning into, obviously, with with tiny seed. So I think that's a good lead-in, actually, to the first. You know, we're going to cover some topics like why raise if you want to. And again, this podcast is not becoming a funding a thing about raising funding. Or if you don't raise funding, you're not in the club. It's nothing like that. It's just another tool in the tool belt, right? It's it's another option revenue-based financing, this type of funding, whatever, to help you get there faster, which has really been the mission of MicroConf startups for the rest of us, all my writings from day one. It's like, how can we help more entrepreneurs succeed, more founders become self-sustaining? And this is just, this is another option. So I may have mentioned a few of them already, but when you see founders raising these small amounts of money, let's say through tiny seed or through doing other angel rounds, like when is that a good call? When should they think about that? And how how are they using the money to essentially accelerate their business in the best case?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when we first started, one of the main ways that I thought about it would be for tiny seed founders would be people who sort of had enough, you know, had some kind of revenue coming in, but it wasn't really enough to make it like their main focus. And I still think there's a, there's a good chunk of the founders that we backed that are like that, where it's like they're at... 3,000, 8,000 MRR, something like that. And particularly if you're you're 8,000 MRR, two founders, you're probably not self sustaining at that point. And like, I think taking money in order to effectively pay yourself and say, okay, I'm not going to burn through all my, my life savings or, you know, remortgage my house to take this risk. I want basically to offload that risk to, someone else who has a higher risk appetite, you know, than me, I think that's one of the better reasons to do it. But I also think like, one of the most surprising things is how many people are at the point where like, they could probably, you know, they don't use the money that we give them to pay themselves, but they use it potentially to accelerate the the sort of channels that are already working, or feel like this gives them the leeway to just be a little bit more experimental with the kind of growth channels they can go after. So like, if you're totally bootstrapped, and you're like, basically, Just about self-sustaining, how keen are you going to be to be like, all right, I'm going to hire like an SDR service and run that for three months for 15 grand and then, you know, potentially hire like a salesperson and and try that channel out or, you know, re-up, start a Google, you know, Google ad campaign to try out this new channel. Like I said, I think it offloads some risk and it enables the founder to take more risks and potentially grow their business substantially faster.
0: Yeah. And see, I like that thing about offloading risk because there's been several founders who I know who have taken money, like Derek Reimer is an example, right? After the drip acquisition. He has enough money that he could basically angel fund himself, right? But he took tiny seed money back in batch one. And when I talked to him about it, like why, you know, why did you do that? Because you have that much money plus plus some in the bank. And he said, it takes some risk off the table. Like A, it's more runway, but it's also less of my personal risk and I don't give up control. It's just not a huge loss except for a few points of equity in essence, which I figure, hey, if it's successful, that's probably not going to matter in the end.
1: Sure, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I like that idea. That thought of, of like taking some risk off the founder because bootstrapping, like true bootstrapping, as you said, there's a ton of risk on you personally and it can be stressful.
1: It can be stressful. And I also think like it, it is a certain level of privilege to be able to bootstrap a lot of the time. It means that you have either a bunch of savings, you made a ton of money doing something else or a lot of the time your spouse makes enough money so that they can cover the whole you know, household. And I think just enabling this kind of funding means that more people who necessarily aren't already in that situation can take the risk that's just inherent in starting something like a software business.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So from from my end, like the folks that I see raising and doing well with the money, they want it to move faster. They want it to decrease risk, as you've said. And usually, not every time, they want it to make a key hire that they can't afford. Especially these days with, you know, a lot of big companies remote now, talent is more expensive than it used to be and so i think the key, the main hires and correct me if you've seen other uh, other situations but the main hires i've seen are to hire like a marketer somebody to kind of run demand gen or an agency to do the marketing and the other one is like more development talent like an, a senior developer who can technically lead so that the founder can maybe step away or if it's a non-technical founder that they have you know, that person now who's who's front of the show. I think those are the two big ones I've seen.
1: Yeah, I think it it's sort of telling how different our approach is, like the founders that we talk to, because that's not what I see.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. What do you see? No, that's why you're on here, right?
1: Yeah. I see people mostly hiring like a customer success type person just to take like customer support load off either key engineers or the founders. And then I see people hiring sales. Like, you know, they're they're trying to like either just SDRs in order to fill more of the funnel for the for the founder to do the close or for the founder to sort of say okay i'm ready for an account exec who can you can do demos so i don't spend all my time doing demos so i i see a bunch of those things too where it's like yeah they probably they, they would have gotten there to where they needed to hire say a customer support or another salespeople, but maybe that would take another 18 months and like just the fact that they can they can hire now just means the business moves faster
0: and, and i think to look at it from the opposite side like what are the scenarios or the situations where a bootstrap founder probably shouldn't raise probably should think about just continuing to bootstrap and i'll throw one out right from the start my sentiment is that if you don't have if you don't have or are pretty dang close to product market fit meaning that you've built something people want and are willing to pay for that i think you should keep grinding until you get really close to that now i'm not saying you have to have a sustainable marketing channel and a bunch of leads coming in and a whole built out funnel that'd be great It gives you a better valuation. It makes more investors interested. But if you're at 2K MRR and you're getting onesie, twosie people coming in and some people are churning and you're just kind of, it's an early product still. My sentiment is that's not something I'm personally interested in investing in. And I don't know a lot of investors who are willing to bet that early. Do you agree or disagree?
1: I think there are a lot of investors looking to bet that early, I think. But they're more like, your story has to be different so if anything i actually think it's easier to raise money when you have no revenue if you have a good story (laughs) it's SaaS, i don't think in b2b SaaS. well yeah but even so it's like you know we're going to do this thing where it's just like you're six months in and you have a 20 percent monthly churn that you people can look at eh, it's hard to explain the difference i think is if you're going to go to market and try to raise with you know no revenue and just like a a plan or a vision and stuff that plan and vision has to be much larger because the kind of investor who are like interested in investing at say 12 million pre you know without a product and just two or three engineers because the risk is now so high they need it needs to be something that they believe can be a unicorn so you're sort of in the unicorn territory like if your story isn't up and to the right they're going to be like Neh. we see a lot of we see a lot of pitches for people who are who haven't, haven't proven anything yet. And so they really have to believe and be excited about the story in a way that like, if you're doing 8,000 MRR and you're growing 10, 15% month over month with no churn, it's a very different thing for people to invest in.
0: Yeah. So I don't know any investors and I have, uh, you know, I'm friends with what, 12, 15 angel investors. These are all former founders or like people I've met through MicroConf and stuff. I don't know anyone who'll invest in a SaaS app pre-revenue uh, you know, there's a couple I'm in the Valley. So I know a Yeah. Them. See, I think that's the difference, right? Is you keep are telling more...
1: me like, Hey, let's talk, let's talk. So yeah, I know tons of people who will do that. But again, like it has to be big vision
0: it has to be a venture scale business, right?
1: Venture scale, IPO, take over the world, change this. Now that those kind of investors typically will, and if anything, I do think it's sometimes easier to, to sort of sell the dream rather than trying to explain the numbers in this regard.
0: I would agree with that. And I will just say, and you and I, by the way, don't agree on everything. So that's like on this podcast. I mean, that's why you're here. Otherwise I could monologue this whole thing, right. And just do a Rob solo adventure. Yeah. We're just
1: talk about marketing hires right. and things like that. Nobody's talking to me about marketing hires. For ever. You,
0: yeah. Think. And when I'm talking to them, they're, it's like, don't talk to Rob. If you're going to do a sales hire, talk to a right? So that's, so yeah, my take is like with B2B SaaS, if you want to build a 10, 20, $30 million business, if you have a really good network, and let's say you're a second-time founder, right? You're a Josh Pickford, you're a Derek Reimer, you're whatever, you know, anybody, Rand Fishkin, can you raise pre-revenue? David Cancel, right, on his fifth one, I think, I don't remember how much he raised, but he raised like $5 million at a 15 or $20 million valuation, with just an idea. Because it's David Cancel, right? But most of us aren't that person, right? Most of us are doing this for the first time. If you don't have a strong network or some type of in, and you'd want to build a B2B SaaS company, 10, 20, 30 million, I have not seen someone be able to raise around at that point, pre-revenue.
1: I also think, crucially, the thing to think about is like, I I do think you can raise, like I said, I know several investors who, who want to do this, like you can raise with just an idea or a deck or just a team or whatever, but then the vision has to be big. And that does usually exclude you or preclude you from actually doing the kind of exit where like at 20 or 50 million bucks, because just the the mechanics of the way that investments are being made in that case with liquidation preferences, valuations, and all this stuff means, and like, you know, rights to to investors to block things and and things like that, you'll end up in a situation where, yeah, like you have to really go for like 100, 500 billion dollar exit or nothing. Like that's the, there, there is very little middle ground there.
0: So another, I'll say a type of business that I think should probably not raise is a step one business. If we think about the stair-step approach, step one businesses are usually oftentimes built on a platform, like a Shopify add-on, a Heroku add-on, a WordPress plugin. And usually they plateau at some point that is far below what any investor, even bootstrap friendly investors want right? And there and there's platform risk, too, that, that hey, you build something big enough, Shopify comes a-knocking, and bad things happen, right? And you build something big enough, and, you know, I don't know, Heroku hasn't done this as far as I know, but any platform can kill you, or just say, hey, pay us 20%, 30% of your, of your revenue all of a sudden.
1: Yeah, that's true. I do see sort of breakout businesses on both who build on platforms, like, you know, that, that does happen, but I certainly think the risk is higher. And I think investors will be more like, well, what happens here if you know, they build this in-house or cut you off in some way, shape, or form?
0: Yeah, and we, you know, being TinySeed, have invested in at least one, and I'd say you know, a few businesses that have platform risk, including Rails Autoscale. Adam was on the podcast just a few weeks ago, and that was a conversation we had early on, was, hey, how does this scale? Because you know, can Rails Autoscale be a 5 or $10 million ARR business as it stands now? Personally, I'm pretty skeptical, and Adam is too, that the space maybe just isn't that large, and so then we said, well, how do you reduce platform risk, and how do you get to X million in revenue, right? And and you, as long as a founder is thinking about that, then at least there's room, there's room to grow there. I think there's been other questions. Someone asked me on Twitter, yeah, maybe it was like eight or nine months ago, like, why is there no tiny seed for info products, you know, or course creators, like makers? And it, it was a, it was an honest question. I appreciated it, and I answered it, and basically said because they don't scale like SaaS, because they're often reliant on a single individual, not all the time, but often reliant on a personality or a personal brand, and the exit multiples aren't there, right? I mean, that's a part of why this works is that SaaS sells for such a crazy high multiple. Not that everyone has to sell, but that is one driver of returns. I think another time when founders should probably not raise money is if they want that true, the true, true four hour work week lifestyle business. They want to work part time. I mean, I, I did this, right? I did this for a couple of years with him. It was great. Work 12 hours a week. And it's like, it's not that suddenly investors are your boss because that's not how it is. I think, I think bootstrappers think investors are probably a lot more involved than, than they think they are, or like managing their time or like send me your time clock. And that's not, you know, your timesheet. That's not how it is. But I do think if you want to work 10 or 15 hours a week, go bootstrap an amazing business and make it a lifestyle. And I've had several of those, but I think the moment you think about, Hey, I'm gonna take out someone's, you know, external funding from someone else. To me, it's kind of a commitment to like, no, I'm going to grow this, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to be committed to this business full-time. I'm not going to go start other side projects during this time. Not that you can't do anything. I mean, you could have a blog, a podcast or whatever. But if I invested in a founder personally and they were doing a SaaS app and suddenly they started another, like a little side project SaaS app, I'd, I would have a conversation with them about, oh, what's, what's the plan there? You know, do you, plan to, do you plan to focus or do you plan to split time? Or, you know, what's the deal? Do you, do you agree with that or what, what do you think?
1: Yeah, or is this a pivot? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> like there's also issues like you. Most investors come along. There'll be IP assignments and stuff in the company. So, if you start a company and then you work on this product and then you start a side business, now is your investor part owner in the side business too? Hmm. Is that a pivot? Is it? What is it? You know, there are certain things to think about there. But I think you're right. I mean, like like running a B two B SaaS business was what most of the time we're talking about. Like the, it's it's a full time job. <laughs> <laughs> you know if you're planning to run most of the time you know if you're just planning to do four hour work week then then I probably would look at like info products or you know some some of the more you know smaller scale
0: and Step one plays are great. I mean, you know, when I think about, I did this with Hittail, right? But it was, Hittail was like, it was like a single feature almost, you know, it was like, it had multiple screens, but it was not the plays that we're talking about. And it really had, it was SEO, it was an SEO keyword tool. And I just had a couple channels that worked mostly on autopilot, didn't have to do sales. It was self-service. Churn was high because the price points were low, but that didn't matter. I got up to 25, 30 K a month. Great lifestyle business, you know what I mean? But that's that would have been dumb for me to then go out and say, I'm going to take investment for this unless I wanted to then double down and be like, look, I'm going to make this into an SEO suite or a rank track. You know, there, there's things that could expand the market, but I personally wasn't interested in doing that in that space. And so...
1: Yeah, I mean, and there's also like, in some cases, like it it makes sense to go after the bigger thing after a while. Like, you know, I, I'm still, I still remember when PagerDuty launched. I was like, PagerDuty, like what? <laughs> business a business? This be what the hell? yeah and now they're a publicly listed company you know i'm like okay was wrong so sometimes there are you know things are bigger than you think i think a lot of the time i think just think as early stage investors it's despite what some investors will tell you i think it's almost impossible to really really have a good sense of like what's going to really work there's just a, a lot of randomness and luck and things in there that accounts for a lot of it
0: yep when I think of funding options for bootstrappers these days, obviously, you know, there's accelerator like Tiny Seed. There are other funds that do similar stuff. See, I don't know. I mean, I've heard of like the Weekend Fund, which is from Ryan Hoover, who's the Product Hunt founder. I don't know if they're bootstrapper friendly or if they're kind of venture only. And I think that's a conversation to have with folks. If you're going to take funding to be like, hey, I would sell if I got an offer for 20 million, right? To be upfront about that. And If the investor doesn't want to invest, then I don't think you should take the money because you're going to have this conflict now when you get that offer for $20 that's going to change your life and you push back on it and the investor's going to say, no, $100 or a billion or bust, right? It's like you have to be on the same page. And there are investors out there, I know angel investors, who are willing to take that 3x, 5x, 10x versus the kind of unicorn play.
1: Yeah, and I think this sort of boils down to a trade-off in terms of valuation that you take too. You know, like I think particularly is more traditional Silicon Valley stuff, it's always like the, the higher valuation you can raise that, the better. It's like, oh, look at us, we raised a $20 million pre or $12 million pre. It's like, if you raise a $12 million pre and you sell for $20 million, even if you have the right to do so and you do it, your investor is not going to be happy. That's <laughs> not what they wanted. That's pretty much a fail for people, and just because of the, the economics of how the investors, uh, you know, the investors and their investors operate. So that's the trade-off, really, when it comes to like... What optionality are you leaving are you are you taking off the table by taking a super high valuation and, and raising a ton of money?
0: Yeah, and that, that's a really good point, is that most of the more bootstrapper-friendly funding sources that I'm familiar with, the valuations are lower than if you went to Sand Hill Road it's silicon valley and it's two people in a garage with two laptops and they have a product and they can get a whatever five or ten million dollar coming out of yc everybody doesn't they don't get a ten million dollar thing whether they've launched or not which is just just crazy
1: so honestly like the last i heard now pre-product launch on demo day it's like 12 to 20 million pre.
0: that's insane but
1: but here's the thing what has changed i think in the last 10 years i've been mean, the value is it used to be i mean because of the dark days of like 2008 2009 and like Almost nobody was investing, which has turned out to have been the best time to be investing in things like Airbnb and Dropbox and things. But fundamentally, I think what has changed is, and I think this is kind of debilitating for founders who who are struggling with this, because you read all these stories about, oh, there's so much money in this space now. It's like you should go out and raise money right now because there's just there's never been more money in the in the ecosystem and if you look at the inflows into venture that's true there's a ton of money going in but they tend to go after fewer and fewer deals and so you end up with this very binary outcome where it's like either you're super hot to the point where like you know venture capital associates are like cold calling you on a friday night you know or there's crickets, like there's nothing. And it's, that's very, very tricky to deal with. Like, particularly if you're trying to raise money and you're in the crickets camp and then you read all these stories about like, oh, it's the easiest time ever to raise money. I'm like, well, it's the easiest time to raise money for a particular kind of company and opportunity and founder. Like, and if you, if you don't want to do that or it's not what you're after, then it can be very hard.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point to think about. Okay, so let's say today, Anar, you had a B2B SaaS app doing five to a hundred thousand dollars a month in MRR. And you decided that you did want to raise that round. Obviously, I would love if you'd come to tennessee.com and your email address. We are now having open applications. We're now running two batches per year. And so every six months, uh, we open applications when we, we you know we'd love to chat and we even have a mid batch application if you're doing anything north of 5000 MRR and we have you know th- those coming through and we're having conversations so we can fund people as you know as it makes sense you know for their journey but let's say you were doing 10 20k MRR and you decided for whatever reason that you, you, know, you didn't want to go through a program like Tiny Seed, and you were going to raise it on your own, and you want to say, raise, say, $200,000, $250,000. In my head, you got to work your network, right? And if you don't have one, I'm not sure what to do. And that's actually, I, when I thought about raising, let's say, six, seven years ago, I was just like, I don't know who I will talk to, who will give me money. But I would then look at using you know, like a convertible note or a safe and people can Google, we were not going to define them here, but they're a way to not actually, you don't have to do a price round now and get stuff on your cap table. And that can take more time. There's more due diligence in that. But convertible note or safe is a promise of essentially future equity to investors. Is that the approach you would take?
1: I think probably so. I mean, I'm more pro selling equity too. I think that's fine. As long as, sort of the problem with selling equity is a lot of the time it ends up, so, so most investors, and people don't know this either, most investors, and this is not true for us, will make the founders pay for their legal fees. So part of the reason why safes and convertible notes took off in things is because it's cheaper on the legal front. And that is sort of doubly valuable because most of the time, traditionally at least, investors have been like, yeah, I'm going to you know have you pay for my for my lawyer. So if you're taking two fifty and it becomes a protracted back and forth with legal reviews on either side, you could easily be in a position where like, oh, you got two hundred and fifty thousand dollar investment, but now forty, fifty thousand of that is in legal fees for you and the investor that you both have to pay out of that two hundred and fifty thousand. But if you can, you know, deal with someone who can very effectively and efficiently do a priced round, then I don't, you know, I don't I don't think there's a huge downside to that.
0: (laughs) That's what we do and we do it efficiently, right?
1: Yeah, it is. Fun. And there's some tax benefits. And there's some clarity there, I think, a lot of the time in terms of like, who owns what, it's less of an issue with, with more like the kind of tiny seed type companies or bootstrap type companies where you're not doing fundraising every 18 months. But some of the challenge with the safe notes, and the convertible notes and things is, if you do multiple rounds of this, and like, you know, one after the other, and some, some bridge stuff in there, it actually becomes quite difficult after a while to f- figure out how much your company is left, because they at different caps and at different times and different triggers and and all that stuff. So, so there is something to be said for this other cleanliness. to say, okay, well, I'm buying equity and we're valuing your company and we think it's worth two, three million and we'll buy 10% for whatever. I do think there's a, there's a niceness to that. If, but the challenge is, like if you run into, particularly if you run into unsophisticated investors or maybe investors who are you know, used to larger rounds or later stage stuff, you can get stuck and blow easily 50 grand in legal fees, which is obviously kind of productive for a quarter million dollar round
0: right to untangle that and i guess my advice there is like don't raise a bunch at a bunch of different caps and valuations keep it keep it simple yeah that's the problem
1: for people like this is the thing like if you're if you're going the more traditional venture route then you know what are you raising money you raise money so you burn hard and then you burn hard and then you're running out of money and you gotta raise more money so you can keep burning hard so right you know there are people with like 13 safes and they're like uh, like is there someone with software that can help me figure out or like a an analyst that can help me figure out how much the company's left
0: yeah don't Do that. I mean, if if you're a bootstrapper, you're not going to be raising all the time. Like I would, my advice would be not to do that. As a bootstrapper, you don't need to be raising all the time, and it's a distraction. And you're not on the venture treadmill where you need to raise every eighteen months. So I would chill out a little bit with it, keep it simpler. One last note on SAFEs and convertible notes is that if you truly are thinking, hey, maybe this might be my my only round, then committing to you're essentially committing to giving equity in, in the future, usually at the next funding round or if there's an acquisition, right? So, if you do plan to run the company, you want to run it for 10 or 20 years and take out profit safe and convertible note, this is not legal advice, we're not lawyers, like that's a disclosure, but it's not the best. I mean, it can screw investors, to be honest. There's actually, isn't it? It's top towel, I believe, where they raise money on safe convertible notes, they never raised another round, they haven't sold, and so all the investors don't technically own the equity and the founder can actually literally legally take money out of the company and put it in his own pocket or you know him or the other founders I guess whoever owns the equity so that's just, it's a weird situation and i think if if you are thinking about doing it longer term then equity it's Probably makes a bit more sense to think about that. The other thing is there was a pre tiny seed uh, didn't an angel investments wound up working out very well, but the founder used convertible notes, and at a certain point he just said, all right we're just converting to equity at, at this rate, like we're just converting at this at the cap or something like that. He just decided he wanted everyone on the cap table, he wanted to clean it up, and he didn't want to keep you know his interest involved in this and that and it was just a decision as the founder he made to to simplify everything so founder thinking about raising money, what do you think? The dollar amounts, where should they land? I guess should is a strong word, but there's a minimum that makes sense, right? It's like, you don't, I don't think you should go r- try to raise a $75,000 round because the time and the legal fees alone are not worth it. And then what's, you know, on the top end, I think, what are your thoughts on small and large?
1: I mean, I think, I think anything less than, it's a little different if you're just taking like, you know, a pre-specified money from us or YC or whatever, then it's like, okay, it's 120, 180, 200, whatever. But I think in general if you're going to raise money, it's probably worth raising at least one fifty two hundred thousand I would say at least that's true I think in the u s and I, I think it's hard like it becomes one of those things is like if you can't raise that much, is it really worth the pain and going through and having investors and just and, and like at seventy five thousand like, so, like so an example of like just cost and things is like if you were to do a, a special purpose vehicles, so this is one of the one of the ways that you can put a bunch of people on a single line item on your on your cap table. like AngelList will do that for the investor on the investor side, but it's going to cost, you know, 8,000 bucks to do, which is actually reasonably cheap. But if you're raising 75,000 bucks, that's a material part of the of the actual investment that comes through. And this is, you know, pretty significant dilution for the investors to take. So I th- I do think that there becomes a, a stage where it's like, you know what, this doesn't make any sense. And I think that's probably about 150, 200,000, something like that.
0: Right. And we should point out that accelerator like Seed is just- different than that. I mean, most founders who raise get funded by us, I'd say the the vast majority is what 120,000 120, to about 250 is the general range. But since our process, we fund 20 companies at once and we fund the entire round, this is very different than you going and trying to find four investors at 25K each and then trying to close a round. That legal cost will be, there'll be a bunch of costs on you and more complexity trying to wrangle them than in dealing with a fund like TinySeed.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, like it's just much more efficient for us. <laughs> and we pay our own legal fees, so we're sort of incentivized to make it an efficient process instead of something that just drags on and on.
0: Right, and then Angelus has a, an RUV, a roll-up vehicle, which I think, I don't know so much about it, but I think the idea is that it's like a no-fee RUV, and it, it's to help with convertible notes and safes and stuff. But I think it's pretty new. Have you heard about this?
1: Yeah, it's not entirely clear to me. I should probably look at how it's different to an SPV. So at AngelList, the SPV fees are about eight grand. RUVs, I think, are sort of similar to that. Like it's certainly the same deal. It's like the reason why you would have an SPV is because you want to be able to say, okay, I want to, there's 25 people who want to throw in, you know, 10 grand each, but I don't want 25 people on my cap table for assorted reasons. So you put together an SPV, and then the SPV is the one that invests. And I think a roll-up vehicle is sort of the same, so it's not entirely clear to me how they're technically different.
0: Well, here's one thing about RUV: is you, they basically say you have to be a U.S. C-Corp in order to do it, so that's going to cut out a lot of folks. You know, bootstrappers who want to stay LLCs or want to be incorporated in a different state, but they basically say if you're raising a SAFE, an equity round, you're likely eligible for a no-fee RUV and with zero care for investors. But again, I haven't dug into it to know how that all works right and how angelus makes the money or if they're just doing it out of the kindness of their heart you think that's the that's Could the be reason? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I don't think that not that angelus is bad it's just their business right they have to make money on this stuff somewhere so cool yeah so in my head i agree with you i think 150 to 500,000 are the most common that's the most common range that i've seen across we have 41 tiny seed investments and i have 18 between Sherry and i 18 private angel investments you know pretty much made before tiny seed. So that's a pretty almost 60 companies and that has by far been the range 150 up to 500 there's obviously exceptions and there's people who go have a really great network and they're a second time founder and they can go out and raise 600 grand in their first round but it that's pretty you know it's been pretty unusual in my experience.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean there are, there are people who do it and it's just it's just a matter of like like what what are you trying to do with it? Like what is the what are the trade-offs in terms of optionality and like what you you know, because like if you raise two or three million bucks, then investors expect you to spend it. <laughs> it's not like we don't expect you to spend it. In some cases, we have to tell founders like, "Hey, why are you not doing this?" It's like, "Oh, this seems expensive." It's like, "Well, we gave you money; you should spend it." This seems like a good use of the money. But that's even more pronounced if you're raising two or three million bucks. Like if you're if you're raising two or three million bucks, then investors will not be pleased if twelve months later there's two or three million bucks in your in your account, unless that's because you've been growing like crazy.
0: Yeah. And I think with that in mind, I mean, and the idea is the more you raise, the more of your company you have to sell, right? And that all depends on on valuation as well. And valuation is really set by the market, but the market looks at what's your traction. Oftentimes, what's your MRR? what's the story you're telling, right? What's the certainty that people think that you are going to be able to provide a return, whether that return, and we'll get into it in a second, is is an exit down the line or it's taking profit out of the business, which is, if you, if you say, I'm going to be an LLC and I want to take profit out of the business and run this for 10 or 20 years, you will significantly reduce the pool of investors who are willing to invest in you. And I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, but just realize that there are far more investors who want you to... Exit right. I think, I think fundamentally
1: one of the things there is like, if, if that's your goal, if your goal is to keep it forever and then, you know, pull cash out and distribute cash over time, then honestly, like what you should be looking at is more <laughs> likely things like revenue based financing, because the investors who are looking for more dependable cash flows are more likely to be putting their money into those kind of vehicles. Equity type investors typically are looking for higher potential upside than what comes from just profit distributions and the fact that with revenue-based financing type things it's a little bit more determined like how this has to work and it's a bit more predictable in terms of the cash flows that the investors can sort of expect versus like if you're taking an equity investment and you're you're saying like oh i'm just going to pull profit out and distribute it over time effectively what you're saying to the investors is trust me i'll do that Like, don't worry, I'll do it. But like, if you take more revenue-based financing, like you're, you're entering into a, like a legal contract to do it. So, so the incentives are slightly different there. Now, the problem, of course, is the stage we invest, like super, super early, the earliest stage, it's almost impossible to get revenue-based financing because your revenue, <laughs> your revenue is so low.
0: Right. And I think at the stage we invest, which is early, a lot of founders don't know they don't know if longer term they want to run it and pull profits off. They don't know if they get an offer for five or 10 million. You know, when you see that number on a check or in an email, it changes your perspective. I tell you what, you suddenly realize, wait a minute, so let me get this straight. I can pay my house off, I can fund all my kids' college funds, and I could feasibly never have to work again or never have to work in anything I don't want to again. That changes your your whole outlook on life overnight and so or they may want to go phrase a venture round later and that's where i think that's where t- something like tiny c comes in that's one of the reasons we started it is we wanted folks to have that option right to be able t- to buy themselves some time to build the business to the point where it becomes maybe a little more obvious of where it should go you know the, and the direction the founder wants to take it
1: yeah. And that, I mean, that can work out different ways too. Like we have founders who, you know, tell us that like, if I got $10 million, I'd sell it. And then now they're at like doing very well. And they're like, no way would I sell for $10 bucks. So it goes both ways. It's just nice to have that optionality, I think. Uh, and like, we, we do have founders who are like, this is a bigger opportunity. I just want to go and raise, you know, a ton of money and go to the venture track. It's like, great do that.
0: (laughs) And that's, that's the fun part. I mean, that's what I like about it. Like, you know, anyone who's known me or or listened or read or just been involved in any of the content I've been putting out for 15, 16 years now knows that like bottom line mission for me is to help more founders succeed faster and get to having a sustainable business, right? Of any kind. And a sustainable business may mean that hey, they are able to you know sell it for for millions or tens of millions or enough money that it, maybe their life changing money is five hundred grand because that changes their life in the short term and then they're able to go start another business. But that's why I love that's why I love doing this podcast. And that's why I love being part of MicroConf, because that community is folks trying to help each other. And that's why Tiny Seed is such a part of the mission and why it was so cool that you and I essentially agreed on that, that this needs to exist in the world, you know. I mean, in 2018, as we were talking about this and figuring out, you know, should we start Tiny Seed, does it work? I knew there was desire on the founder side because of all the people that I had invested in and was kind of like, all right, I'm out of money in terms of you know writing more t- checks to startups. I need to keep my allocations between Bitcoin and, and Ether and public equities and all that reasonable. But what I didn't know is, you know, would investors, in essence, uh, be willing to invest in, in this asset class? And that's been the, the that other side of the marketplace came together pretty quickly, which has been nice.
1: Yeah. And I think I mean, we started seeing that from the on the buyout side too with discretion capital. We started seeing that like five, 10 years ago, certainly 10 years ago, but even five years ago, it's like if you had a two, three million ARR B2B SaaS business growing reasonably well, but clearly not going to be the next Airbnb, there wasn't a lot of interest you know, from on the buy side versus that has really changed, changed on the buy side as well. So that makes it more feasible to basically get money from investors who want to come in at the early stage there. Yeah, because the potential exit market and it's just they see that it's like, you know, people are selling for, Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times ARR at you know, two, three million, and that that becomes a, a viable, you know, a viable thing to back at that point.
0: Right, that's what's good today. Is if you are building SaaS it's so capital efficient. It is can, can be extremely profitable if you decide to keep it. It can be extremely lucrative if you decide to sell it. And if you gain traction, there is money out there, you know, whether it's, you and I've talked a lot about tiny seed here, but we've talked about pipe.com, revenue-based financing, and there's a whole word, just type in RBF or revenue-based financing into Google and you'll see 20, 30 players in there. There's a lot of options out there. And then there are, you know, uh, again, other funds, you know, that are thinking about this stuff. And that's, I just think we live at such an amazing time. If you want to bootstrap, awesome, do that. You know, that, that's what I did with all my, all my SaaS apps. But you know what, dude? Like one of the reasons I started Tiny Seed is I wanted this fund to exist for me because during the drip years, we needed money and we were doing all types of crazy stuff to to cut costs and it was super stressful. And I wanted to really quickly raise A couple hundred grand is what it would have been a big difference, but I just, it was like, I just don't have the time to do it. And I don't know if I have the network, which in retrospect, I probably did, but I, I don't know, there was all this indecision around it. And I think almost destigmatizing or perhaps normalizing it just a bit more, I think is, I think is helpful, you know, in this space.
1: I think so. And it's just like, I just want to back more founders. I think more people should be doing their own thing. Wherever they're based in the world, rather than you know feeling like they gotta like the pinnacle is to go work for Google or something in Mountain yeah.
0: yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, sir, I think we've covered this pretty well. If folks want to keep up with you, you are Anar Volset on Twitter. It's e i n a r v o l l s e t, and of course they can keep up with us uh, at tinyseat.com if they want to hear more about it or. You blog prodigiously on your .com, don't you? Do you have one blog post in the past like year?
1: On dot .com, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a table that shows IRR versus multiple for the over time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, amazing. Yeah. I know. Says the guy, I, I'm like shaming you. And I mean, the last time I blogged was probably two or three years ago. So
1: well, at, least, at least you put things out. I was thinking about this. I was like, yeah, if you follow me on Twitter, you're mostly going to see me complaining about the giants. Right. <laughs> the Right. <laughs> like I said, I'm not the marketing guy side of things here. I'm, I'm more the background dude.
0: And you are headed to the UK. You're actually going to be in or around London for what, two, three weeks? Four weeks here soon?
1: Four weeks. We'll be there through the end of the summer and then come back for the kids' school start here. And then I'm probably going to be in and around Europe and London for throughout the fall, really.
0: Yep. And so part of the reason you're there is personal, but part of the reason is because we are raising a European Tiny Seed Fund. And so if you're an investor, whether you live in Europe or whether you just want to have exposure to that, essentially that asset of, early stage B2B SaaS located you know, somewhere in the, the EU, Europe area, they should reach out to you. They should go to tinyc.com slash invest. And there's a few questions there and that pings you directly and you'll be able to meet in person because you're fully vaccinated. That is super cool. Awesome. Thanks again for joining me, man. Thank you. Thanks again for joining me this week a lot of good ratings, five-star ratings are are rolling. It's It's been super cool. I think we're approaching 920 worldwide ratings and I want to get to, to four figures. So if you haven't given us a rating or a review, I'd appreciate either or both. We received this Great review from Gilmore Golf from the UK, five-star, refreshingly honest and relevant. I'm a fairly new listener who's now working their way through the back catalog of episodes, but I wanted to leave this review to thank Rob for all the value, insight, and education he shares for free. I now have a renewed energy and inspiration to pursue my entrepreneurial ideas without compromising on the most important things to me. In other words, my family. Thank you, Rob, and please keep going. So thanks again. This is the kind of stuff that makes me want to keep going and and makes the whole team behind startups for the rest of us make us want to keep going. So thanks Gilmore Golf. And if you haven't left a rating or review, I'd really appreciate it. that wraps us up for the week and we'll be back in your earbuds again next Tuesday morning.